please pray with me? Lord, with gratitude we come at your invitation and command into the presence of the living God to receive the living word implanted. Lord, you have a word for us, and we pray that we will receive what you have to say to us with good and fertile soil of the heart that lets it sink deep and grow and take root and bear fruit. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Steve Breedlove, and I have the privilege of being the bishop who serves this church as pastor and shepherd. It is a great joy and blessing to be with you at Christ Church, as it always is. We are grateful for this church. The Lord is blessing this church, and the Lord is blessing us through you, your generosity, the ministries of leadership development, the multiplication of churches and parishes, the stability and strength of your conviction, standing firm in the faith, and then most recently, the gift of John Craig. So we're grateful for John and thankful that he is coming to serve in a broader sense within our movement. I have the privilege of being the bishop for the Atlantic Coast Network of Pair USA, and I have three primary ministries, pastoral and guarding and missional. Uh, my pastoral ministry is the care of clergy and churches, ministering to them in any way and making sure that they are resourced and supported so that they can do the, the job they are doing in the local community. My ministry is guarding, guarding the discipline and doctrine of the church. And then missional, expanding the mission of the church. One other fact, uh, our network, the Atlantic Coast Network, which is about 30 churches, is becoming the Diocese of Christ Our Hope in the ACNA, the Anglican Church in North America. That is an all good statement. We are doing what we are doing under the authority and by the direction of Archbishop Anasfor Raje and the House of Bishops of Rwanda. And if you'd like to hear more about that, I'm going to be hanging around after the service downstairs eating some good food. So in, you, you're welcome to ask me whatever you want. I introduced that idea primarily to introduce the name, Christ Our Hope. It's a wonderful that we sang a song, Anchor, today. What an incredible song. And to set the pace of our time together. We chose that name after much prayer and discussion, sitting in a coffee shop in Rwanda in September. And we chose it because we believe that God has, in a sense, given us a stewardship of hope to bring into the North American church. Hope is fundamental, of course, to the message of the gospel. It's fundamental to our identity, fundamental to our mission. And I believe that the Lord wants to speak hope into us today. We read this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that you are born again to a living hope. Hope is part of our spiritual DNA. We are genetically stamped, as it were. You have been genetically stamped with the color of your eyes and the color of your skin, and you cannot change that. At some point in time, you have to get over your genetics and just learn to enjoy them, right? And in the same way, we have to receive the genetics of hope. We have to believe that it is what we have been given, and we have to embrace it and be the people of hope. Christian hope, of course, is not wishful thinking, but it's a confidence that looks at today and lives in today in light of the future. The future realities bleed back into the present. So often we do the reverse, right? We take our present experience and bleed it into the future and say the future is going to look like what we feel today. No, 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 no. 
The future is secured for us in Christ because the center of human history has been secured on the resurrection day. The resurrection day is the very center of human history. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and that's the central fact that governs every other fact of our existence. The darkness delivered its most deadly, hate-filled, unjust blow. Destruction loosed its fury, but that's all it could do. And the darkness and destruction and death and injustice was rebuked by the life of Christ. And the final word is life, light, and love. We live in this in-between time. As Jesus says in the gospel today, it's a little while. <laughs> Remember that. A little while. You're in the little while. He also, in John 16, lab- uh, parallels it or likens it to labor and birth. What a beautiful illustration. Labor is a difficult process, I'm told. But it is not the beginning of life. Life has already been born. Life exists. It is the passage of life from one dimension to the other. And it is a difficult transition. But you're going from life unto life. From life hidden and secret into life expressed and lived. That is where we are. We are in the birth canal, folks. We're alive. And we're in passageway. And the real life is yet to come. That is our hope. Hope is living in light of that confidence. And, we live as, and when we live in hope as followers of Jesus Christ, we know where we are headed and we know what God's intention is for all of humanity. Do you realize that? And because we know what God's intention for all of humanity is, which is hope and life and love, then followers of Jesus Christ who live with that hope can do amazing things to transform the culture. It's been happening for 2,000 years. Today I want to talk to you about hope. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. But as you're turning, I have a question for us to consider. And I'm actually going to take the answer out of another passage, but you don't have to turn there. The question is, how does hope actually operate in our souls? How does it work? How does hope work? And for that, I want to use the text from Hebrews chapter 6. I'll read it to you. Hebrews 6 says, By two unchangeable things, it is impossible for God to lie. It's proven to us, so to speak. We who have fled to by these things, we who have fled to refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus has gone before us into heaven, representing us, presenting us before the throne of God, bringing us to the Father. And the knowledge of that is the essence of our hope. It's really what we were singing about today in that song, Anchor. We know the future is secure. We know that we stand before God in Christ, accepted by God, welcomed by God, because the perfect Son of God has gathered us up as his brothers and sisters and is bringing us before the throne of God as our advocate, as our defender, as our pioneer, as our redeemer, as our brother. And we are going to be welcomed into the very throne of heaven at a point in time in eternity. If you ever want to read about the beauty of that, read Zechariah chapter 3. It's 
one of the most amazing passages in Scripture. When Jesus rebukes all accusation against us and stands for us on our behalf. That is the hope laid up for us in heaven, according to Colossians chapter 1. Well, that hope, according to Hebrews chapter 6, is like an anchor to our souls. It, it enters us into the heavenly places, and it holds us firm in the storms of life so that we know the very worst thing that life can deliver to us, that's where we're headed. And it keeps us stable. But that's not all that it does. There's an important addition to the image because it says in this passage in verse 19 that that hope enters into the inner places. It moves. So it's a stable hope that actually moves. So I want you to change the image. Not just an anchor with a line connected to you that fixes you, but an anchor connected to a winch line that pulls you someplace. So... Hope is not just like an anchor. It is a winch line that pulls us into that future. We lived in Western Canada for several years. Canada is good at many things. It's beautiful mountains, great natural beauty, great people. We lived in Calgary, great food. And Canada is especially good at winter, okay? (laughs) And lots of trucks and SUVs and Jeeps and so on were equipped with winches for their own use, but of course, I think to help those who get in trouble as well. Well, you, I'm not the only one in this room who can remember the, the feeling of joy when somebody comes along who was better prepared than you were. <laughs> and you're stuck in the mud or the ice or the sludge or the snow, deep snow, and somebody comes along with a winch and hooks it up to your front, you know, to your axle, and you, you, you hear the, flip, flip, uh, the switch get flipped, and you see the line get tightened, and your car begins to move. Oh, hallelujah. (laughs) Or maybe you were the smart one and you've got the winch on your car and you've hooked it up to the tree or you've hooked it up to the rock and you flip the switch switch and you, you, you start to pull it out. The sheer joy is there. Well, that's how Christian hope works. It anchors us in the storms. Yes, it anchors us. We sang that today, but it also pulls us. And it pulls us out of despair and confusion into the place where we are going to be and where we already are. And it pulls us and moves us out of our challenges. With that image in mind, now we go to 1 Peter. And I want to run the table with five different aspects of our hope as a Christian. Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1. We have been given an inheritance in glory. So this is, in a sense, an addition to the fact that we're in glory. We have an inheritance. So we are fully brought in as children of God to share everything that Jesus has received. So what that translates is everything we know about Jesus in heaven, he says, I'm sharing it with you. So you are partakers in that. Verse 4, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. The most basic concept of Christian hope is our future, right? This light, this light, this love, but it's full of glory, it's full of joy. We're being protected and guarded for that. All of our deepest longings will be fulfilled. Every tear wiped away. No more sorrow. The veil of death that covers humanity like a pall will be rolled up and thrown away. The sky is cloudless. We receive the welcome into the family, the inheritance, the full inheritance of children of God. A new heaven and a new earth open up before us in glory. Hallelujah. 
1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 11, a few verses down, has a phrase that the Spirit of God predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. Jesus has proven to us as children of God that any suffering we face now will be swallowed up in glory later on. So every suffering you experience now, let it be a trigger to remind you of glory because that's the final word. So your sorrow, my sorrow, my suffering will be swallowed up like the ocean swallows up a tear. It just is gone. That's our inheritance. That's our hope. That's our confidence. St. Paul was given a glimpse of eternal glory. He describes that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But then he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that no human language can bear the weight of what he saw. There are no words to describe the glory in heaven. So whatever image you have of glory and what it's going to look like, Believe me, it's a pathetic image <laughs> compared to reality. Let that hope pull you like a winch line out of fear and despair and anxiety and sorrow and hopelessness. We have an inheritance as children of God. We have an identity as God's children. We have an identity. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, we often read verse 16, I think, as a command, you shall be holy. And the reality of the matter is that is a command. We are to pursue holiness. And a lot of what we do in Lent is, in a sense, prepare our hearts for a holy life. It's a holy Lent. We are seeking to pursue growth and holiness. But I want you to read it another way. Read it as a promise. You shall be holy. Therefore, live as you shall be. Christ is committed to us, according to Colossians chapter 1, to present us holy and blameless before the Father. And I want you to know something about how promises and hope and all that sort of thing operate because what God promises is what he declares and what he declares is our hope. So every promise is something we hold on to as a hope because it's a declaration. You will be presented holy and blameless before the Father. You shall be holy. It's a promise. That's where you're headed. And so as a result of that, when the accuser comes along and says you must sin, or tempts you, or accuses you, or reminds you, or threatens you, you say no, because that's not reality, holiness is. Blamelessness is my reality, that is my identity. I'm a child of God, and I share his holiness, and he is giving it to me, and he's taking me there, so therefore I will live according to who I am. I am not that, I am this. I am not what you accuse me of. That is a lie. This is the truth. We have an inheritance in heaven, in glory. We have an identity as God's children. Verse 22, we have been included in a family. This too is a declaration and therefore a sure hope. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of imperishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Brothers and sisters, you are and we are a part, a, a members of a family of love. 
when we've been offered the incredible means of grace to love one another, to forgive one another, to be reconciled, to no longer hold each other in distance, to live in love, to learn to love, to live as a family forever, to learn the beauty and the glory that God displays in each person sitting in this family, to learn who God is because of the manifold blessings of God poured out upon people in this room, and to understand the unexpected joy of a family. Now, I can't tell you how many times over the course of my years I've argued with God about who he adopted into the family. Are you sure, God? Do you really mean that he is my brother? You know what happens every time I lose those arguments? And he reminds me, Steve, you no longer, you no more chose your eternal family than you chose your physical family. And so just like with your physical family, you got to either figure out how to get along and learn to love and enjoy who you are, even more so your eternal family. So you might as well get over your pride, your condescension, your anger, your disappointment, your offense, your memory of what they did to you or whatever it is. Because we've been given something within the grace of God, a family that will never end, that shares the amazing the common bloodline of amazing grace, and story upon story upon story that we need to hear of how God changes people in unexpected and amazing ways. And that hope of a family pulls me like a winch line out of mire and mud of bitterness and pride and judgmentalism. Now, I want you to hear what God is doing in this passage, in this text, okay? First of all, it starts out quite individually. You have an inheritance and glory, you personally. You have an identity as a child of God. But now suddenly we've moved from that personal, and and it's very personal, to something that we all share together, right? We have an inheritance as a family. We are a family. We are invited into this family. We're included in this family. And this corporate nature moves into the next statement. In verses 4 and 5, we have been invited into intimacy with Jesus. And even though intimacy with Jesus is something we pursue alone, in one sense, we never pursue it alone. (laughs) Because even in our personal worship, we're entering into the worship of the church. But especially Sunday after Sunday, we come as a family to worship. And that's what we are invited to do in verse 4 of chapter 2. As you come, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God... Chosen, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And as you come is plural. Now, what I want to focus on right here is this strong image that we have been brought together as a family, but now called as a family together to pursue intimacy with Christ. And in Anglican churches, there are many ways in which we come together to worship week after week. But in that process, what is promised here is as we come collectively to pursue intimacy with Christ, he transforms us into a different kind of people. And I'll tell you what that is in a minute. I don't want to give you the punchline yet. But in Anglican churches, we have many things that we share together. We come as worshipers, not spectators, right? And the liturgy calls all of us into the worship. So the worship is not what's happening up here. It's what's happening here, right? 
We have liturgical events that are crucial to remind us of the fact that we come as one people, as the family, as the body, as the people of God. So today we're having confirmation. People are being brought by the church, presented to the larger church, to be welcomed by the larger church. I am their representative on their behalf. I welcome them, pray for them, pay gifts to be poured out upon them so that they can go back to the church in order to serve the church. It sounds like this is the church today. You thought that some people were being confirmed. Uh-uh. We are entering into the confirmation of the gifts of God upon the people of God for the sake of you. This is us. Sacraments, the baptism of a child or the baptism of an adult calls us to all renew our own baptismal vows and reminds us of who we are and whose we are. Every week, the climax of our service is coming together to Christ to receive afresh and anew the life that he gives. And week after week after week, we see our brothers and sisters coming forward with the same hands that we have, empty and open, to receive what we cannot achieve for ourselves, sharing a common grace. And we see that person, and we know the struggle that they're having at work because they're our friend. And we remember the fact that that marriage is really in crisis, and we remember to pray for one another. And we see the pain and the physical challenges that this other person is bringing in her body. And we pray for her. And as we do that, as we come together in worship to Jesus, commonly understanding the grace of God, something literally mystical and transformative happens. So what I'm telling to you is that your worship each Sunday is so crucial for so many reasons. But one of the things that is happening is as we come in faithful worship, week after week after week, we are being transformed together, knit together as, according to the text, a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So suddenly what God is doing is something we, is beyond the sum of the, of, of, of the parts. And he is creating a people of God to be the priests of God. Now, we believe in our theology in the universal priesthood of all believers, right? But I want you to understand that you, as a local body, are a priesthood collectively. So that you stand between God and this world collectively. Folks, your prayers for the world collectively are unbelievably powerful in the spiritual realm. And they are necessary for the work of God in Winston-Salem. You are the people who represent the world to God in prayer. You are the people who represent God to the world through your witness and through your words, through your acts of compassion. You are a priesthood that comes together. And let me just tell you, I don't understand what I'm telling you. (laughs) Because what I'm telling you is that the sum is more than the parts. So just keep coming. Because God is doing something beyond what any of us can understand. It's not quantifiable. You're being changed. The invitation to intimacy is a sure hope. It would not be issued if it were not possible. God says, draw near to me and... Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come together to worship, and you will be knit together. That's what it says. You'll be changed, and you'll be changed together, and you need each other for that change. 
So let's review so far. You're giving an inheritance of glory. You're given an identity as a child of God. You're included in a family of love. You're invited into intimacy. These are our hopes, guys. This is what pulls us out of the mire and the mud of our hopelessness. And then the fifth promise of hope is that we are invested with a mission and purpose in life. Chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And we have the calling and the hope of proclaiming the mercy of God to the world, of proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that hope, that promise, that promise of a purpose and a mission pulls us like a winch line out of the despair and hopelessness and meaninglessness that dogs our souls. Now, you may have a different temperament than I do, but I am about a nanosecond from falling into hopelessness in my own temperament. That's the nature of my malaise. But I have a sure hope. Not only am I headed for glory, a child of God, part of a family, called into intimacy that will be transformative in my life, but I have a meaning and purpose in life. I have a job to do that is of eternal significance. Because in it, God is saying, I love you to people who will last for eternity, through people who will last for eternity. And the message is a message of mercy and love. Now, who of you cannot say God has been merciful? Who of you does not have that message to say? Which of us cannot say that we live because of the mercy of God? We have a message. The bulk of 1 Peter unpacks the details of how that might work. Specifically, how do you proclaim the mercy of God in the midst of confusing and uncertain politics and unjust rulers? That's the next section. Whatever you might think about our current president or our next president, he or she, I guess we must say, certainly wasn't Nero. Peter was writing under Nero. And he says you can do it under Nero. The next section talks about how you, do, how you proclaim the mercy of God and the goodness of God in the midst of an unjust work situation when you're be treat, being treated unfairly. The next section talks about when you are being reviled and hated by the people around you. The next section talks about a wife who's living with a hard-hearted and cruel and indifferent husband. How does she proclaim the mercy of God? The next section is, again, is how you can return evil, blessing for evil to a neighbor who despises you and that you're called to be a blessing and to give a blessing. We live in Chapel Hill, one of the most pervasively liberal communities below the Mason-Dixon line. You know that. Not after we, long after we moved there, Sally had a gathering of women. It was a day of spiritual retreat. And one of the gusts uh, inadvertently parked in front of our next-door neighbor's auxiliary unused parking pad. Notice my adjectives there. <laughs> auxiliary unused. We'd never met the neighbors. We had had some dealings with them because when we moved in, we found out that they had built a fence about a foot into our, into our yard. So their lawyer came to our lawyer asking for a variance. What's a, what's a foot? Who cares? We gave them the variance. They're not going to pull down their fence for that. So that's kind of in the background, but we had never actually met them. Uh, so while the women were there in, in silent prayer and reflection, and they were scattered about reading their Bibles, praying, Sally heard a sharp knock at the door, you know? And she went to the door, and there was a very angry woman there. And she said, someone in your party has parked in front of our parking pad, and we need you to move the car. 
okay, sorry, you know. By the way, your husband's that Anglican priest, that new, that new Anglican church, right? Well, yeah. So you're part of that church that hates gays, right? Well, I really don't think so. <laughs> I never heard that. Certainly not part of our doctrinal statement. It's not how we act. It isn't really actually the reality. You might be surprised. Why don't you come over and see what's going on in our church? You might be kind of surprised what is happening there. But if you want to talk about it, I'm sure Steve and I would be glad to discuss it with you. Meanwhile, we've got something going on here. I'll get the car moved, okay? We'll, we'll, we'll take care of that. Won't happen again. Okay, she stormed off. Well, unfortunately, about a year later, it happened again. But this time, she didn't come over and knock on the door. She took her two cars out and sandwiched the offender by pulling her cars bumper to bumper so that they touched her bumper. Now, the only issue is that the woman who had parked there had to get out to go to a funeral early. So when she went, she couldn't move a car. So she went and knocked on the no next door on the neighbors to get the car moved, and the, and the lady wouldn't answer the door. So we had to get another car for her to go to the funeral and all this kind of stuff and get it worked out later on. I heard that story, and I was seething. I had this beautiful image in my mind, this dream of removing the variants and the look on their face when the lawyer brought them the papers saying, you're going to have to tear down your fence and rebuild it. But Sally was more of a Christian than I was. <laughs> And she said, pray. Pray for ways to care. She wrote a letter of apology. It won't happen again. And eight years later, it hasn't. And I think that they have used their auxiliary parking pad maybe three times in eight years. In the meanwhile, little, little ways we've tried to communicate and you know, break the ice. Not because we are superior. And this is really what I want you to hear. Not because we are superior, but because we've been treated with mercy. Our entire life, rides on the mercy of God. And I cannot tell you, I couldn't even begin. I, won't, I have no idea. Heaven will tell the countless waves of mercy upon which my life exists. So that truth, that hope of being the people of mercy and sharing in the mission of God to declare the mercy of God pulls us to treat her mercifully. Lo and behold, about two years ago, the same neighbor stopped Sally on the street. She said, I, I, I've been thinking, I think we got off to a bad start. <laughs> you think? Maybe we could start over? Can't get any worse than it was. <laughs> so we tried, you know, started. It's not all roses. We took them honey for a Christmas gift, Merry Christmas, sourwood honey. You know, here it is. They couldn't even respond because they are not just non-Christians, they're pagans, okay? They actually believe in other gods, okay? And uh, again, I came over and I was grumbling and Sally was a better Christian than I am. And she said, how would you respond if somebody came and brought you a gift and said, blessed Mohammed's birthday, you know what I mean? You probably wouldn't kind of be stuck, you know? You're not going to say anything. When you say Merry Christmas to them, it just sticks in their mouth. They won't say it. We have these truths declared to us. And because they are truths declared to us, they are promises. And because they are promises, they are hope. And because they are hope, they are sure in Jesus Christ. And the hope of our future bleeds back into our present. And we stand in confidence today because of who we are and who we're going to become. The life has already begun. We may be in the birth canal of the little while, but we know what's happening. An inheritance of glory, identity as children of God, a family of love, 
intimacy with Jesus that transforms us and invested with a mission and purpose. Let the hope pull you out of the mud. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.